Hey, I'm Haley. And I'm Sydney. And on this week's episode, it's all in the timing. We're talking about coral spawning. And And it's to die for. Hey, Sydney. Hey, Haley. Do you have ocean news for us today? Oh my gosh, I have the coolest ocean news piece ever. Really? I'm actually super <laughs> excited. Um, there's a new study that just got published in Nature Microbiology, and it has to do with corals and their endosymbionts, mm-hmm. which is super cool. So for those of you who don't know that big word, basically the endosymbionts are the little algae that live inside of corals tissue to help them do photosynthesis and harvest energy from the sun. Um, And one of the really cool things that this paper just discovered is the specific way that coral are marking the endosymbionts as they're bringing them in through their oral cavity and saying, oh no, these ones are set aside for becoming endosymbionts as opposed to ingesting them. Oh. So, yeah, so it says here um, that they found, using some molecular biology tools, they found um, a molecule called lepin, I think is how they're pronouncing it, which the coral is secreting from its mouth. And so as the algae go in through the coral's mouth, Certain algae, so the endosymbionts, the ones that they don't want to eat, are marked with this lepin molecule, and it allows the coral to know that those are going to become intracellular algae instead of going and being eaten. That's amazing. Yeah. So they said this is really exciting because it has uh, implications in inoculation studies. I know. That's what I was just going to say, and that's what I'm going to do for my PhD, so... Yeah, so they're utilizing it. They want to utilize this molecule to maybe um, mark some algae in advance. Yeah, that, and that then... will indicate to the coral that it should not be eaten. It should be uptaken. Yeah, so super cool. Ah, my mind is blown. I need to read this study. <laughs> super exciting. <laughs> Thanks, Haley. Yeah. So excited for this episode. It's another one of our recordings here at the Benthic Ecology Meeting. So today, special guest, will you introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Krista LaForest, she, her, um, and I am currently a master's student at Nova Southeastern University in Joanna Figueiredo's Marine Larval Ecology and Recruitment Lab. Awesome. Super cool. So you mentioned that you are at Nova Southeastern University. Are you from Florida or are you from a different state? Yeah, not from Florida originally. Um, I actually grew up just south of Boston, um, so entirely different environment. Um, but of course, you know, being on the water still a lot made yeah. that like that's just an innate part of my life. Um, it was never really a question about what I wanted to do. I wanted to be on the water, look at the organisms, go pick up rocks, see what's underneath it, yep. and um, I ended up through a really roundabout way, which I'm sure we'll get into later, uh, settling in the coral reef ecosystem. That's really cool. You said currently you work in a coral reef lab, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Finishing up your master's work. Hopefully soon, yeah. Cool, cool. So tell us about that position. Like, what do you do? What kind of research do you do? And like, I don't know, what what does your job look like? Yeah, so my day-to-day job is actually quite different um, from my actual study, so that's great. Good yeah, well, it's great. It's, yeah. it's good, right? It gives you like that was my whole reason of of going to this lab is um, getting different skill sets. Um, so day to day, we work on um, in a land based nursery. So we probably have maybe hundred hundred and sixty corals. Wow. Um, yeah, a bunch of different species. Most of them are ones that are particularly susceptible to stony coral tissue loss disease, um, which you guys have kind of talked about on the podcast a bit before. It's something you guys are familiar with, with your work. Um, But we are actually part of the Florida Reef Track Rescue Project. Um, super cool. Yeah, so do I need, have we talked about that? Do you want me to kind of go into, okay. Like a little, Brittany talked about it in her episode. Same project. 
Okay. Yes. But if you want to give us a give brief... A, a quick spiel. Yeah. yeah. Can you give us a spiel about the origin of it? Yeah, so basically the uh, rescue project started as a response to stony coral tissue loss disease, which started in 2014. Um, and so because it was affecting so many species and really killing off large colonies because of how quickly it spread, um, a bunch of collaborators decided that they should collect... Um, large colonies uh, that are all susceptible to this disease ahead of the margin. Um, so this was before it had spread throughout Florida Keys and Dry Tortuga. Yeah. Um, and keep those on land-based facilities so that they can, one, preserve that genetic diversity. Um, and then something that our lab specifically is focusing on is getting those corals to reproduce so that we can create a bunch of babies that are super hardy and hopefully less susceptible to this disease to then be used for outplanting and restoration efforts. Super cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That so kind of takes what Brittany was talking about in her episode and expands a little bit more on like the scientific origin of that. So that was a great description. Thank you. Yeah. 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 So part of what I do on a day to day, I'm actually our kind of AZA health liaison per se. So I'm making sure that every day I check all of these colonies that we have um, to see if there's any signs of tissue loss um, or is it just, you know, they're paling, uh, maybe their polyps are a bit more retract than they are usually and kind of prescribing um, what we want to do to treat that. Mm -hmm. um, so my day-to-day -day is actually a lot more um, aquarium husbandry work, which is something that I didn't have a lot of experience prior to starting this degree. And then, of course, in the summer, when we get into the busy season of spawning, um, then it, it gets absolutely crazy. So right now, our lab, like as we speak at this yeah. conference, our lab is blacking out our entire room um, so that no light comes in. They're quite literally just responding to the artificial lights that we have in our systems that will mimic the light levels that they'll see on the reef. And you'll even see it ramp up and down with the sunset and moonrise. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we turn into little mole people and have like, we're just working under these red headlamps um, in this very small area and waiting for these corals to spawn. It's really funny. They'll be giving tours of the university um, and say like, oh, it's all blacked out for spawning. And sometimes they're giving these tours during spawn watch and you'll just hear us yell, sperm! Um, <laughs> and then you just go and collect really quickly and try to fertilize um, and raise these little babies. So a lot of, a lot of microscope work in the future because um, they require a lot of care. Uh, but it's super exciting to see we've gotten, we were the first to um, get Montastria cavernosa to spawn in captivity which we love MCAVs here. Yes. Um, but we've also had success with um, Orbicella fabulata. Um, and then we also had some Pseudodiploria strigosa go this past year. Uh, we're hoping this year we expand that with our uh, Copophilia natans. So shout out to Alec. We'll get some, some baby sea nets, yeah. his favorite. Um, but yeah, those are the main species that we're dealing with. Um, just for general lab work. Mm -hmm. uh, my project is much more field-based, um, looking at spawning synchrony, or the lack thereof, um, in a cropper cervicornis staghorn coral, um, because they typically tend to spawn after the late summer full moon, um, pretty much everywhere in their distribution. So north of us in Fort Lauderdale, they're spawning that time, even in Miami, spawning that time throughout the Caribbean. Fort Lauderdale, they're doing that two weeks prior to the full moon, which is a large problem because that means they're not going to mix their gametes with any other diverse groups. Um, so that really can be a problem for reseeding these degraded reefs, um, especially since they're critically endangered, right? So it's super important that we understand what is driving this change. Yeah. So what is so cool about staghorn coral? Like, why are you working with Acropora cervicornis? What's the importance? Okay. Yeah. So historically, they are super abundant on Florida's uh, coral reef. Um, because of their branching morphology, they're really good reef builders and providing habitat for lots of fun little critters. So if you're diving, um, there are tons of fish that'll swim around them, which is fantastic. Um, 
and but now unfortunately critically endangered due to a bunch of different stressors um, and disease events that have happened in the last you know 50 years or so mm -hmm. um, so our populations are way down uh, but fortunately they've kind of been like the key to restoration or early stages of restoration um, so that has been great for figuring out how to restore with asexual reproduction so you know cutting a piece in half and then both will continue to grow and rebuild but we like to focus on um, restoration through sexual reproduction because that helps us with that genetic diversity mm -hmm. and that can be good for resilience to different stressors in the future because who knows what will be happening on our reefs um, in the face of climate change so we we think that having more diversity will help with that resilience yeah so cool Okay, can we take a step back for a second and yeah. let me ask you a question that I'm pretty sure I know the answer to, but some of our listeners may not. Okay. So when you turn into mole people, why do you use red headlamps? Oh, this is a great question. Yeah, so um, corals, when they synchronize their spawning, so basically they all, you know, put their watches together and say, hey, at this time we're all gonna, all gonna release and make little babies, um, they use cues from the light of the full moon uh, and so white lights can confuse them and either prevent them from spawning or make them spawn earlier so we found that red light actually helps maintain that synchrony um, so anything we can do to improve that means that we're probably gonna have better fertilization opportunities so red headlamps I like it like and it's it. the same with sea turtles too. Like whenever they're doing nesting, all the scientists have red, red lights, lights on not to disrupt the nestlings or the mama. So yeah. And as many of you on the podcast or like many of you listeners know, um, red is one of the first colors in the ocean to kind of filter out or be absorbed by that water. And so um, that's actually one of the reasons that red is so useful for us scientists is that a lot of organisms yeah. in the ocean are actually not adapted to see red. So while we may go down and see a red soldier fish or a red crab and think that that's a really bright, vibrant color and say, wow, that's really weird, that's terrible camouflage, um, ocean animals oftentimes have no red receptors or like are not adapted to see red because it's so poorly perceived in the environment that they're in anyway that it's not really useful. So a lot of these red fish actually use it to blend in, yeah. um, not to stand out. So. Super interesting reason that red is useful in the ocean yeah. and in marine science. You'll see a lot of red light being used. And also, this year is going to be a really crazy spawning season because aren't there two full moons during August, which is the prime spawning season? Yeah, so that really throws a wrench in all of my plans because um, in previous years where there's been two full moons, right? Like, corals don't have a calendar on the wall of the ocean, which doesn't exist. Um, so they don't know, on the, like, the reef wall. right? The reef wall, yeah, sure. Um, so they don't know whether it's late August or early August. They're just kind of responding to different cues like temperature and obviously the light of the full moon. Uh, so it is possible that we'll actually see some colonies in different sites go in early August and some might go late August. Uh, we may even have some that actually spawn early July. Wow. Um, so it's, it's going to be a bit of a mess, but that's okay. Um, it's not necessarily the worst thing, right? Like sometimes when corals split spawn, it can be beneficial because if there's a major bleaching event in late August, all of those babies are going to probably not make it. Yeah. Um, so it could be beneficial, um, but we do still want some synchrony, right? Mm -hmm. So if only one colony is spawning earlier on, they just wasted the entire nine months of making these eggs and sperm and releasing them and a bunch of fish are going to be really happy to eat them right yeah. but the coral reefs are not going to get any of those babies yep you said that there may be like a bleaching event or something in late august why would you anticipate like like as opposed to the first full moon in august the later full moon in august what, what would you anticipate being stressors there sea surface temperatures tend to get a little bit higher um later in the summer so if they are really stressed out from bleaching, um, 
You know what? We're going to make the analogy. It might get a little bit weird. Um, But, you know, like, sometimes if you've got a lot going on, you might not want to be focused on these things with your partner. You're like, I'm just kind of tired. Like, can we just do this later? Um, And so the same thing could happen with bleaching. If they're too stressed out, they're not going to reproduce. And then... Furthermore, like, even if they do, right, that's, it's not going to be good for those babies because when you're so small, any sort of stressor is, is probably going to spell out your demise. So spawning earlier when there's less of those stressors could be beneficial Mm -hmm. for you to kind of get that initial survival and growth going on. Nice. Okay. Great. So they're like putting more energy into surviving as opposed to reproducing and then their gametes are going to be so small that they just don't perform well. Interesting. Super cool. So we know that you have a lot of experience on the water, um, kind of like where you came from and where you are now, but what initially drew you to the water? What what started it all? Like I grew up... right on the water like I Mm -hmm. I could I could walk from my house to the beach um and it it never really was something that I was introduced with it was just always there um and my grandmother would always take us down to the beach and there was these seagrass beds that were right by the seawall at my house my dad would fish from and he'd pull up a bass and it was some of my favorite stuff or we'd go swimming and there'd be horseshoe crabs like swimming all around and at that time I was like oh my god what is this dinosaur like freaked out but also very intrigued um and then as I grew up you know I noticed like those seagrass beds started getting smaller and smaller and my dad would get less and less excited because his catches weren't as big I'm like emotional about it it's so sad I didn't expect this um or like all the horseshoe crabs all of a sudden I was like you know what I don't remember the last time I've seen one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of made me think like, wow, like even in my lifetime, I'm starting to see these changes about my home, you know? Yeah. Like it was so sad, but last time I was home, I was so stoked. My dog was running in the water and all of a sudden I just saw like this shadow by her and I was like, oh no, what is that? And then, and then you know, she ran away because she was also like, what is this dinosaur? I'm scared but intrigued. <laughs> Um, and so they're actually coming back a little bit, oh. which is nice. Um, but yeah, just kind of seeing these changes made me be like, I, I have to protect this because yeah. my whole life, I mean, we kind of grew up in that like climate change and the ozone layer hole and like, we have to protect this for the future generations. And then I was like, even within my life, I've seen these big changes, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't want this to go away. It's all I know. It's what I love. So that drew me to the water, but um, it didn't really get me to coral reefs, right? Because yeah. that's not exactly the environment that's up in Massachusetts. Yeah. So now you do all this really cool coral work, which is phenomenal. And I'm sure you dive to do a lot of it, right? Yeah. So how did you like get started diving? How'd you get to coral reefs? You keep alluding to the fact that it didn't start here. So how did it start? Okay. I, I love this question because everyone you know, in the dive world, it's like, what made you want to dive? It wasn't like my parents dove. I didn't really know anybody that was diving, right? Um, but when I was a kid, my favorite favorite Star Wars movie, not all time, right? Like Star Wars, yes. Okay, I'm <laughs> I'm not a Star Wars person, but it it's important. Um, I don't even know which movie this is. It's the one with Jar Jar Binks. Yes, Jar Jar. <laughs> I'm a Phantom Menace, I believe. <laughs> okay, but. This one came out when I was a little kid, and they go into this underwater world, and I didn't know at the time, but they were using the force to, like, make an air bubble around their mouths to dive down there, and I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I want to do that, right? And, like, then I didn't think about it for years, because I was a kid, Um, and then I was too embarrassed to be like, Phantom Menace is my favorite Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) But then in high school, um, my parents were super generous in, for my birthday, my mom and I got certified together. Um, really, she was like, well, this is my kid. I'm not just going to send them off underwater and she's going to need a dive buddy. So I'm happy to do that. Uh, so I got certified my junior year of high school. Um, and then I was kind of limited because I didn't really have many dive buddies. And my mom was like, I would love to go on a nice vacation uh, where it is warm and sunny and the water is warm and clear and not like Boston, uh, which is fair. Um, so I didn't really do much diving 
after I got certified. It was like vacations, mm-hmm. the eighty eighty diver, um, which if we haven't talked about it on this podcast, it's the idea of like you only dive when there's eighty feet of visibility and it's eighty degree water and everything is perfect. Um, so it wasn't actually until I started my undergrad at UNC Wilmington, um, and I joined Scuba Club, and they were really great about doing group classes. So I immediately got into doing my advanced certification. Um, I don't know if I, no, I hadn't done my rescue yet at that point, but um, my mom ended up texting me this opportunity with the Boston Sea Rovers, um, which is one of the oldest dive clubs in the country. Um, And she was like, they have this summer internship. You have to be dive certified, but like, I think you should apply. This would be something really cool. Um, And at that point I was like, well, like, I don't really have any plans for the summer yet. Like, uh, sure. Like I'll, I'll apply to this. Um, And that, genuinely changed my life. It made me fall in love with diving and gave me so much experience. And essentially they choose one intern for the summer and send you all across the United States, even some international trips and are just like, let's expose you to every aspect of marine science possible and as much unique diving experiences, like tailor it to what you want. So like if you wanted to go for photography, they would send you out to um, the backscatter shootouts and set you up with this fancy camera rig and take you all these different places to learn about it. Or like, oh, I'm more interested in archeology. span Great, let's get you and do like some cavern dives. Um, And so for me, I was like, I like science and I like diving. Um, At that time, I thought I was going to study um, dolphin behavior as as most people do when they start marine science, right? Like. I don't know. Like, I want to play with dolphins. Yeah. I'm um, a scientist. Oh, do you study dolphins? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. First question. Yes, exactly. Um, but, of course, Blackfish came out, like, right around that time. And I was like, my career is over before it's even started. Oh, I can't. No. Like, what am I going to do? But I was still like, animal behavior is cool. Um, so I was able to work with people at the National Aquarium, obviously, and New England Aquarium. So yeah. It's right there. Um, But they even sent me out with people at Salem State University, and we were doing, like, sea urchin density surveys. It was the first time I had, like, ever used a quadrat, ever. Like, not even underwater, just ever. Um, And they were all so patient with me. Um, They even let me go to Woods Hole, and I was doing some um, cuttlefish behavior. (gasps) What? Um, Yeah, that was with um, Roger Hanlon and some of his RU students at the time. And we literally were just sitting like cuttlefish in this little tank and the camera and we just watched their chromatophores like oscillate and change colors and I was like I am mesmerized this is the coolest thing I've ever seen okay what's a chromatophore okay (laughs) Mm, like a good textbook definition I could not tell you but basically it's these color pigments that they have on their skin it's almost like if freckles could be like disco lights and change different colors and shapes and sizes like they even can kind of change their texture too Um, but they do it like during different behavioral responses so the one we were looking at was called the passing cloud which like we should definitely get a video for the instagram of like i don't know if i have any it would be on like the oldest of laptops and probably really grainy but they probably have some good stuff online somewhere um but they also can like change their coloration um, like half of their body. So something that cuttlefish, I think maybe even squids do is they'll change half of their body to do like the mating kind of signals. And then the other half will be like, I'm not trying to pursue this person. I'm just a silly little cuttlefish so that other males don't fight with him yeah. to mate. And then they end up mating with the female anyways. And so cool. I think in another life, if I didn't end up falling in love with corals, I would have, I would have done something with cuttlefish. That's so cool. I didn't know that fact. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. I think I'm just an invert nerd. Like, honestly, because cuttlefish are inverts and octopus are inverts and corals corals are inverts. inverts. (laughs) And all the cnidarians are inverts. And I don't know. I just, I personally, maybe I'm 
of the few that hold this opinion, but I think inverts are probably the coolest organisms on the whole planet, and oh, yeah. people can just fight me over it. So yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I'm willing to go to bat for that as well. But they also like challenge you in that internship, right? Because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, you think you want to do science and biology, but what if we put you in this other thing? And that was what planted the seed of like, just say yes to whatever opportunities you have. So this is the coolest thing that I probably did during that internship, and I would have never thought to do it. So every other year in Maryland, they have these um, human-powered submarine races. So different universities, literally, yeah, it's the craziest thing. Um, Different universities will have their students engineer human-powered submarines, and then they bring them to this, like, um, military pool basin, and then they will race them, um, and they're all on scuba. Yeah. So they're in these tanks, like, either pedaling with their legs, these submarines, or using, like, hand pedals to drive, and I got to be like a mock dive safety officer during that time. Oh, so like cool. checking in everyone, like making sure they're going in with the right um, pressure in their tanks, making sure all their gear is good. Um, and these guys got crazy with their designs. Like my favorite one, it was built so it looked like an ice cream cone. <laughs> um, and I, I have a deep love of ice cream. So I was like, this is my favorite. <laughs> but it was something I never would have thought to look into and it really just like planted that seed of drift diving my career which is like my newest favorite philosophy of i'm just i am but a little plankton in the sea and wherever or a larvae you know a coral larvae in the sea and whatever the current is taking me i'm just gonna go with it yeah um because i started being like i'm gonna study dolphins and then i took a weird detour in Alaska, um, where I was doing some a little bit of cold water diving. So I had gotten dry suit certified um, through the Sea Rovers internship. And then I was also looking at like sea otter scat. Um, and I called it like a reverse puzzle because I would, I would take a spatula and then I would um, scoop up their frozen poops on the beach and bring it back to the lab and like clean it all and then sort it out and be like, this little piece right here, this looks like a sea urchin spine or this might be um, a little bit of crab claw and then like categorize it in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, my time there ended and I pivoted again because um, I was still like, I really like behavior and Working with Roger at Woods Hole, I got really interested in like the neurobiology of things. So my undergrad thesis was actually with um, Kara Yopak looking at shark brains, oh. um, which like she's the coolest in the world. Her lab is just like jars of brains everywhere from a bunch of different species. Um, and that was actually what led me to coral reefs in like the most roundabout wild way. Yeah, and. I'm going to I'm going to kind of backtrack here a little bit. So I the only reason I ended up getting in with Kara was actually because someone I met through the Sea Rovers internship was her TA when she was in grad school. And I was like I'm trying to work with this girl. She's not like she's not answering emails yet. There's so many people who want to work with her. And he was like Kara, I know Kara. I'm going to call her right now. Um and then doubly one of my lecturers in Alaska was like a shark guy in Alaska, yeah. and he's like, I also know Kara, and he quite literally interrupted one of our lectures and called her, um, and she wasn't awake because it was a night class, and we were, you know, four hours behind yeah. West or East Coast time, and he left her this voicemail being like, Kara, it's so unlike you to answer emails, particularly from these incredibly bright students that I have here, like, please call me back when you have a chance to talk about this, um, and that was amazing because it worked. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what, what, what are the odds? Oh and I was, I was like so embarrassed because everybody else in this class was like, what is going on? <laughs> but pro tip, networking is good. You never know who knows people. Um, and like, oh, yeah. so serendipitous. Honestly, that was what I was going to say. Like, we've already referenced two of our previous interviews. And it's not just because Sydney and I know these people, but it's because our field is incredibly small. Yeah. Like, marine science although it is a very vast field with lots of different options on things to do, like, 
the interconnectedness of it is equally as vast. It is unbelievable what a few hundred people around the world can do as far as networking. So it's, yeah, yeah like, it is equally about what you know and who you know. Yeah. I don't I don't think it's unimportant to know things. Oh, of but course. But it is also very important to know people. And, like, you're... It's not just your brain, it's also your personality and your, you know, your friendships and your relationships. So, like, don't discount the importance of sitting around and having dinner with colleagues and cohorts and whatever. Like, that may not seem like work, it may seem like fun, but Mm -hmm. it is also a great opportunity for you to make really strong connections with people who could be future collaborators, future advisors, future employees, employers. So, yeah, don't don't knock um, what a good dinner or a beer or a coffee can do for you as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, even at this conference, I've seen two professors I had in undergrad, a TA I had in undergrad, someone from, like, my honors college, and then, yeah, it's just insane, and it blows my mind every time. Yeah, I actually, this is so wild, because my sister is an accountant, not in marine science at all, yeah. and two people at this conference have come up to me being like, do you? are you Kelsey's sister? Um, which, like, usually it's my mom that people are like, oh, are you her daughter? So that was wild. One of them was like, oh, I, I saw you at her wedding. And I was like, what? what? <laughs> um, but really cool. Like, it's it's a small world. Yeah. Um, and much like ecosystems rely on each other and are connected, even if they're not, you know, visibly right there next to each other, yeah. they still rely on each other. And that's, like, networking and being a generalist is not a bad thing. I've gotten mm-hmm. so lucky like things that I never thought I'd be interested in have taught me so many lessons about just like field work in general, but also just applying these broader concepts mm-hmm. to my studies. And like, I would have never thought they would have been important, but yeah. you just, yeah. you literally never know. That's another really good point. It's like my entire undergrad degree was in terrestrial work. And like all of my research experience was aquatic or semi-aquatic or I mean, at one point I was doing wastewater-based epidemiology, which is not even really environmentally relevant. Um, but I think that it's super cool to, to keep in mind the idea that like these broad concepts of biology, whether it's human biology, whether it's animal biology, whether it's like large, broad ecological concepts, they apply across ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So like, don't, don't think that by studying, quote, like the wrong thing, you're gonna pigeonhole yourself into a certain career like you can use these broadly applied concepts to transition at different points in your career you're not tracked into any one thing so like having a broad set of experiences doesn't make you um I don't know for me I felt like sometimes I was scared that I was making myself like not good enough at any one thing but I think it makes you really it makes you okay at a lot of things instead of being great at just one thing right and I think that's an that's an advantage in a lot of ways yeah I think definitely someone in my undergrad who she was an upperclassman during my time when I was a little baby undergrad and she was just the coolest person ever um and she one time told me the best thing you can do is add as many tools to your toolbox as possible. Yeah. Um, because we all know, like, marine science is, is super competitive, and it might be this one thing that sets you apart from other people, you know, whether that's like, oh, I'm great at driving the boats, yeah, or, like, say, yeah. watching a boat. Watching, like, watching a I've boat. I've literally had interviews where people have been like, wait, you can back a trailer down a boat ramp? And I'm like, yeah. yes. Yeah. And they're like, done. I'm like, I've, I've had weird ones where it's like, oh, you have experience running a business and like doing accounting and like that kind of stuff that's so valuable yeah yeah and it's like I would have never yeah thought of that and then this also brought up like a good point I don't know we try and specialize so much and I think when I was in like undergrad and also high school I was like why am I taking these classes I know what I want to do I want to study coral I want to be a marine biologist why am I taking this random class and then now like, throughout my master's program, I've realized, like, these general classes do apply, and they do contribute to your degree and the research you're doing now and how you understand the different ecosystems you're looking at, and I kind of wish I would have known that back in the day. Like, people tell you, but you don't listen to them when you're yeah. in high school and undergrad. Yeah, and on, like, an even broader scale, not just classes that you take in high school and undergrad, but just, like, in life in general, mm-hmm. I remember when I was in Roatan, and someone relayed this to me and it was like the most beautiful lesson that I think I've ever learned and I've, I've held it very near and dear to my heart is that like 
being a generalist is the best gift you're ever going to give to yourself because when you are located on a small island or like you have limited access to resources or expertise like if you can be a coral biologist and know something about engineering and know something about plumbing and know something about boat operations and like that just means you have all the more tools to not need to call someone else in from another country, from another place, right? Like you can fix the problem yourself. When the boat breaks down, you have an idea about how to get back to shore. When the plumbing in the coral tank breaks, which it does, (laughs) you have thoughts about how to approach that problem and you don't need to rely on somebody who may not be there or like may not be directly accessible to come in and fix that problem for you. So like, I think that, we drive specialism but honestly generalism is just such a great approach to this field and the ultimate generalist is Montastria Cavernosa (laughs) 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 every time we say generalist I'm like MCAV honestly we'll take an MCAV approach to this baby (laughs) okay the next question I want to ask is tell us more about your Alaska ice diving, cold water diving adventures. Yeah, so this is actually something I struggle with a lot because I love doing coral reef work, but I miss cold water diving so much. I just feel like there's like an extra level of clarity that I get in cold water diving. Like diving's great because it's like you just have to focus on, you know, staying alive I mean that's dramatic but you you know what I mean like it's like you really need to be focusing on that stuff you're not focusing on like oh I have an exam next week and I need to think about this 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 like what groceries do I need like you're not right focusing on that you're like this is the task and let me also make sure my buoyancy is good and I have enough air and my buddy is safe and uh the mooring didn't pop off and then we're stuck here you know like but cold water like adds a level to that like you're just so alert because your body is like in shock um but we are dying shutting it down shutting it down survival mode yeah um not gonna be growing not gonna be spawning just surviving yeah (laughs) um so yeah the sea rovers internship um i was able to get a lot of dry suit experience um and then when i moved to north carolina that's mostly warm water but um, I ended up getting a scholarship from Women Divers Hall of Fame to pursue my dive master. Um, and so I was working with a dive shop down there and we did a lot of quarry diving. Um, and we were really like strong uh, champions of there is no such thing as a dive season. Um, so, you know, we'd be going uh, to the quarries and it would be like, you know, 40 degrees out. The waters were not, you know, they're quarries. They're not good visibility it can get pretty cold once you're below that thermocline um so a lot of my dry suit experience was actually in those quarries um and then my senior year a bunch of us from um this dive center decided instead of having like a tropical glamorous spring break trip we're gonna go ice diving um so i love that take me with you (laughs) it was the coolest thing I think I will ever do. Um, I feel like I, I say that a lot and then I surprise myself. So I, I think it's the coolest thing I've ever done, but maybe I'll, I'll go back to doing cool things. I don't know. Um, cool, cold things, yes. ice cold, cool, cool. <laughs> things. Um, so we went up there and then there was a blizzard during that time, of course. Um, and we had to then like shovel like three, four feet of snow off of this area and take this chainsaw to cut through, like, I think it was, like, ten feet of ice. Um, We were at Lake Superior, uh, which is obviously the best diving because it's superior. (laughs) But, um, (laughs) shh. Haley looks like she's in pain talking about cold water diving. You're giving me nightmares. Like, this whole thing sounds so cool for you and also, at the same time, like legitimately my worst nightmare i am so claustrophobic and i hate the cold so i am so excited that you've experienced this and get to tell me all about how dope it was and then i don't have to do it (laughs) yeah um so after we you know clear this area get this triangle ice chunk out of the way um they actually tethered us which i didn't know they were gonna do so i was like 
I'm gonna get trapped under the ice. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just, like, having this mental image of me, like, banging on the ice and no one finding me. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's not what it is, right? That's not safe to do. So they, they have you on a tether. Um, so they teach you, like, the codes. Like, one tug means you're good. Two tugs means, like, I need more slack. And, like, a bunch of rabbit tugs is get me out of this water. Um, and that was... Uh, quite the experience. So I actually had my first underwater panic doing that mm-hmm. dive. Um, and at this point, I had been a dive master. I had like helped other students work through panic, but I had never really had like a full panic. Um, mm-hmm. So I get under the ice, and you would think that was when the problem would start. That I'd be like, "Oh, there is. I'm in an enclosed space." No, I was like, "This is amazing, beautiful. I'm a little yeah. bit chilly, but I'm so excited that I'm gonna just ignore that." Um, and we're diving, and we're going. How was the getting in? Like, did you have to go down through 10 feet of ice, like, in the water? Was it, like, how did you get in the water? Yeah, so it almost was, like, when you're in, like, a pool, right? You can do, like, a giant stride entry, Uh or you can, like, sit on the edge and kind of do that sit and turn Mm -hmm. kind of motion. So we just sat on the edge, you know, strapped your fins on, do that sit and turn just to get Mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. Um, And then from there, like, you're just descending like a normal dive. Through 10 feet of ice? Yeah, I mean, the, the so the triangle in space was quite big. Like, okay. kind of think, like, almost like a jacuzzi-size hole. Uh, okay, it's okay. not, like, shimmy your little body in there. It <laughs> makes me feel a lot Yeah, better. yeah, there's, there was definitely more space than, like, tiny little hole, make yourself fit. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're going, we're diving. I, it's maybe, like, four minutes into this dive, and all of a sudden, my first stage on my regulator freezes. <gasps> Um, and they're built so that they fail open, right? Yeah, so then yeah. all of a sudden it's just like massive free flow of air. And I had done these drills so many times yeah. of like, what do you do when you're right? Free flows. Yeah. Um, all of that left my body. I think the water was so cold, my brain froze. And then I was just like, <gasps> panic. Um, and I start booking it back to the hole. Um, and I'm like, tug, 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 get me out of here. Um, and I don't, I swear that I was like a whale breaching out of the water. Like I jumped out of this water. I don't, I don't know how I did it. Um, and then my, inst- I had the safest group with me. Yeah. Like there was like three or four course directors. I was the lowest certification and I was a dive master. Like yeah. I was with the perfect group for this to happen. And I get up and I'm like, <laughs> like hyperventilating. And the, my course director locked eyes with me and then I locked eyes with him and immediately I was like I don't know why I did that I could have just like done what we did for drills and he was like so you're fine and I was like yeah yeah and he's like do you want to go back in I'm like absolutely um but I ended up using another reg yeah that yeah. was like built for ice diving mm-hmm. yeah um and then it was like the coolest I'd ever seen like you you know how have you ever gone like cavern diving you see all those air bubbles on I the top love them. It's, there's that but there's also ice. Yeah. Um, and so it was gorgeous. But it literally was the weirdest thing because as you went down, the water got warmer. Oh. Um, and you were, like, breathing up in your air because it was so cold on the surface. You'd get in and you'd be like, I just got 200 PSI back. Nice! Whoa. I didn't yeah. think about that. But I did think about the, like, weirdness of water. Water is one of the strangest molecules on our planet because it actually is more buoyant as a solid and then it is as a liquid, mm-hmm. which is not true of almost any other, like, structure yeah. in the entire, like, no, pretty much no other molecules are like that, right? And the fact that water is more buoyant as a solid, ice, it floats, than it is as a liquid, is a super important thing for basically the entire way the world works, right? Like, if ice were dense, then things would freeze from the bottom up. Ponds yeah. would freeze from the bottom up. And then the fish would all down. be trapped in ice. It would be like an ice age scene where Scrat's like stuck there. Yeah. <laughs> or they would just, like, they would not be able to survive, yeah. right? There would be no things that could overwinter in ponds that freeze, oh, right? Yeah. Or in, in the ocean. Like, the bottom of the ocean is about four degrees Celsius. The top of the ocean in the Arctic is colder than that. It's ice. It's frozen. It's at zero degrees Celsius. So it makes very little sense to us who are used to like tropic diving where it gets colder mm-hmm. as you go down. But once water hits a certain temperature, it actually starts to float. And the certain like the the three and two and one degree Celsius water goes up, which is bizarre to yeah, us. Like yeah. it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I just I think that is so wild and also that like the whole world works the way it does. 
icebergs exist because ice floats in water, which is crazy. I think, I'm pretty sure, and I could be wrong on this, that it has to do with the lattice structure trapping small volumes of air inside of it, and that's mm. part of the reason that ice is more buoyant than water is but i just it's this is why we pay attention in those chem 101 classes that we don't think are relevant to the degree it is it It literally (laughs) structures how the world works and then when you go ice diving you can think about these structures and why it is the way it is yeah so sorry for the the quick nerd out aside (laughs) but i just love i I loved it it's so cool and then (laughs) yeah what other things did you see underwater like did you see any critters or was it mostly just like amazing ice structures and bubbles and yeah i mean the ice and structures and bubbles was the coolest thing like they told us when you get in the water like everything else is a normal dive look up that's where you're gonna see some really cool stuff but we were right by a pier so there were you know those those fishes and stuff but it also was very dark because yeah um a lot of ice and then also blizzard level snow on top of it so like you're really just it's kind of like a night dive where you you have your lights um and luckily the course director that was down with me had like the biggest light I've ever seen that was so strong and I feel like it lit up most of the area. One thing they told us at the end of the dive, they gave us a special tug signal Mm -hmm. and that was like, I want to do this really cool thing in which you would go up basically to the top of the ice and invert yourself so that your fins are on the bottom of the ice and then you gave them like this rapid tug so that they knew to pull you in and you like ski on the bottom of this ice upside down. My friend has a video I'll have to ask him because my GoPro got so cold that it failed. So I have zero proof of that I did this besides my friend's pictures. That is amazing. Um, But I grew up skiing and I was like, I finally get to combine my two loves. (laughs) I get to ski and I get to dive at the same time. And it was the coolest thing ever. I know the I know someone. He does a trip every year. Safest you'll ever do. We'll, we'll hook you up, and then I'll go back because I want to yeah. go back. Perfect. And okay, then, so I know that I said I would never do this, and I just spent ten minutes telling everyone how awful this is. But um, you may have convinced me. Just <laughs> <laughs> it could happen. Okay, girls like trip. Girls trip. All the are we gonna do a to dive for <gasps> trip? Promo code to dive for. (laughs) We should. Oh, that is definitely going to be in the works at some point. I don't know when. You guys can all visit me. Perfect. In Australia? Yeah. We can do coral reef dive, then go down south and do like a kelp forest dive. (gasps) I would love that. Okay. Well, you heard it here first, folks. It's happening. Not sure when. Not sure where. Not sure how much. Email us with your interest. Yeah. Please tell us how interested you are so that we can make this happen thank you is anyone else in australia we can uh do yeah we can connect a little networking (laughs) a little uh ecosystem food web networking yeah (laughs) cool okay so within all of these crazy cool experiences you've had um my gosh you've done so many things ice diving and we need like five episodes on crystal i know (laughs) i haven't even gotten into like so much other stuff but like (laughs) just being a generalist has helped me and i've just gotten some really weird opportunities out of the blue and i i don't know i'm I'm not even trying at this point um but i have a really hard time saying no uh so it's really benefited me but there's also been times where i've been too stressed to spawn because i just keep saying yeah i'll do that sure why not Yeah, no, I I am the same way, so I feel you in that. Um, But, like, throughout all of these crazy cool experiences, have you ever felt like any of your, like, identities or demographics or whatever have advantaged or disadvantaged you? Has it changed, do you think, the way you've experienced the diving or this field or anything like that? Yeah. Um, Short answer, 100%, absolutely, it has. Um, And also, I'm going to preface with, like, I have had just as many bad experiences where people discriminated because I'm a young female as I have had of people going to bat for me and saying like you can't treat somebody that way and so I'm I'm not gonna talk about those but they do exist right like mm-hmm. and those are the people that you want to keep in that close circle yes um because they're always gonna be there to give you the opportunities but it's definitely been tricky so I mean as a young female I started diving when I was like 16. Um, it can be really tricky, especially around guys. You're in bathing suits a lot. Um, 
And also, because I was young and a tiny little thing, you know, it was always like, oh, you can't carry these tanks. Like, you need, you need the tiny little, like, pony bottle tanks. And I am very stubborn. Um, and I'd be like, yeah, well, I'm actually now I'm going to take the steel 100s and watch me carry them. <laughs> yeah. um, and, of course, I wouldn't let them see me. Like, I'd walk away and then you know, go behind a corner and, like, have to put them down. Like, oh, God, this is so heavy. But... I was like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to show you, but I'm not going to like, I just like to kind of speak with my actions and not, you know, tell them directly like, hey, that's not cool. Um, But I think as I've like gotten more confident in my position in the field, like if I see that happening to somebody that's younger in their career, I'm now that person that's like, why would you say something like that? You know, and like really trying to challenge people's thoughts um but yeah definitely even as like a dive master which i know you've definitely talked about Mm -hmm. with your experience as an instructor like sometimes you're teaching people who are far older than you um or they are larger men that are stronger um and it, it can definitely be tricky like i've i've had people where i was interested in learning about tech diving and they said like oh yeah, like this is, this instrument's for the boys. Let me put you with my wife and she can tell you about underwater makeup. Um, which like, uh, that has actually fueled me to just like be even better in my career. Um, but like, just like stuff like that. Right. And I, everyone on boats now will like make fun of me because I wear like the grandma suits, like bathing suits from Talbot's because I was always like, when you're working as a dive master, be professional, cover up, don't, allow that to be the thing that makes people think it's okay to like pursue you when it's like I'm actually in a very like I am working right now Mm -hmm. and this is a professional environment um so I've luckily avoided a lot of things by being the person in like the granny suits um but also like you shouldn't have to feel that way yes you know I was was just about to say that like it yeah and I will say there's like two sides to that coin where I've had and there generally is a a noticeable distinction between people who want to help you lift your heavy gear on the boat because they genuinely just want to help you like your friends and your peers or your boyfriend or you know like hey you've been running tanks all morning and yeah let me grab that one like it's not a big deal and the people who want to help you get your gear onto the boat I'm using this as like an analogy for lots of situations not just this one but the people who need to help you because they don't think that you're capable or should be doing it, right? Yeah. And so I have definitely had people step in in both ways before. And I um, sometimes have a hard time accepting the help, help even when it is well-intentioned because my ego gets in the way. Mm-hmm. And I I feel like people have implied that I'm incapable so many times that I need to prove to people that I am capable. It's tough to tell when people are also genuine and not genuine. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. But there, there can be... There can be a pretty noticeable difference between those two. Not always, but there can be, I think. Um, Where I've had people step in and say, like, oh, no, 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 you shouldn't be lifting that. Let me do it for you, you know? And it's, like, that's not really the same thing as, like, hey, do you want me to get those tanks on the Mm -hmm. boat for you? Like, you know, that treats you like, I know that you're capable of doing this, but in a casual sense, let me just Mm -hmm. offer my help for you, right? So, like... I think there is definitely, um, like, a difference in approach. And I've also noticed that sometimes it's just a generational thing where, like, I, at least in my experience, where sometimes people maybe not, maybe are well-intentioned, but step in in ways that kind of overstep yeah. um, because yeah. they don't understand the uh, dynamic of the field the way it is today, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. My philosophy is also in diving that if I can't carry my gear anymore, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be, be diving. diving. So, like, I just want people to respect that and respect that I'm going to carry my gear for as long as I can and carry as much of it for as long as I can. And that's, like, my personal mm-hmm. goal. And that's how I, like, maintain that it's I'm ready to dive. Yeah, yeah, that's my metric. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's definitely cool. I think I... Normally, I don't really like to talk about all the experiences that I have because I yeah. I struggle with, like, getting so excited about, like, I've done all this cool stuff. Like, I want to tell you about, like, when I went ice diving or when I was in Bonaire during COVID for research. Like, um, because I don't want it to seem like I'm bragging. And I don't know oh. that a lot of men, like, have this experience. Like, it feels 
just like arrogant and if it was somebody else they'd be like oh yeah no he's just like really a leader in the field so I tend to keep very quiet especially around a lot of male divers and I've I've found that like they speak to me having no experience like knowledge of my background um and it actually it gets it's funny it's kind of it's funny to me now Mm -hmm. because I'm like I know that I'm good I know I have this experience but it is interesting that like I've had guys come up to me and I'll be like yeah I'm a diver and they're like oh me too like I've done this 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 and like okay like I, I actually have like probably similar experience and then they'll be like do you know scuba pro is a brand of gear and i'm like oh actually those gosh. are my fans yeah i do <laughs> um but like and then like i said those people who will go to bat for you will then come up after letting them like tell me how diving works knowing that i ended up having like a bit more diverse experience and then my friends will come up and just start bragging for me and it's kind of funny now to like they their faces just kind of feel like oh man i was just I was a jerk there. Yeah. Um, I've experienced this so many times. And the other day, I was, like, giving... I was the one giving a presentation on corals in a coral restoration project. And one of the PIs, like, I just... All of us were talking at the same time, and I was trying to write down, like, whose corals were from an XC2 nursery and whose were from an NC2 nursery. And I, like, asked them to repeat it. because I was the one taking all the notes and, like, distributing all this information. And he took the time to explain to me what an XC2 and an NC2 nursery were. So XC2 being on land, NC2 being in the ocean, in the water. And I was like, I knew I was at a good point because I had the confidence to be like, yeah, I, I, know. I know what those mean. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. But it's also tricky too because, and this is another gender bias, where if a female will be like, no, I know you're labeled as difficult or bitchy mm-hmm. versus a guy might say this stuff and then they would probably get apologized too yes. for being like, oh, yes. I'm so sorry. Like I, I shouldn't have. You know, assumed that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's always been tricky, but it also is, like, our job to look out for seeing when that happens to others and, like, call it out for them. Because when you're new in the field and you don't want to be labeled as difficult, especially if you're in a room with all these very important important and experienced people who could be potential connections for you in the future. And I know that I have definitely had those interactions and I stayed silent because I didn't Mm-hmm. want to ruin Shoot yourself in the foot. yeah exactly yeah. um but now i'm like you know what i know people i have the connections my people are the good people and i don't want somebody else to feel the way that i have felt you know yeah yeah and i feel like kind of the same thing that you're talking about where people will assume that you don't know things and explain things to you um and then you're like also by the way like i have a phd and they're like oh, oh oops my bad and like it's the same thing of like you know, I assume that you don't know something, and so I'm doing something that is completely not appropriate for the situation, not knowing mm-hmm. that you are equally as knowledgeable as I am at this specific thing. And that's that's kind of like the... I've gotten similar vibes in marine science things before. Not, not the inappropriate commentary, but just like, let me explain this very basic concept to you, like that gas compresses at depth. And you're like, yes, I'm I, an instructor. I know about this. I do teach yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, yeah, I've I've had similar situations. Okay, yeah. you want to go to the fun questions? Yeah, onto some lighter topics. This is a new one. What is your underwater quirk, or what's your scuba slash marine science ick? Okay, um. I actually love the gross stuff about diving. Um, everyone is always like, oh, do you get mermaid hair? And I said, I have marine debris entanglement hair. Like, <laughs> it is not anyone who thinks diving is a glamorous job. It is not. You come up with snot all over your face. Your hair is a mess. Uh, you probably peed on yourself most of the time. Yep. Um, but I love it. It's like, and all the gross marine organisms too. I love them. Like, mm-hmm. I don't really think that there's icks. Uh, I am a sympathetic puker, though, so if people get seasick on the boat, that's... I have to, like, leave them. Um, oh. So... You said, I am so sorry for your loss. I will be abandoning you before <laughs> yeah. I abandon my lunch. Yeah, there was actually a, a time where I was diving with my buddy, and he was like, something's wrong, and we need to go to the surface. Um, and I was like, do you need me to tow you to the boat? Like, you're looking a little funny. And he was like, knowing you, I actually need you to get away. And I was like, what? And then he immediately just started 
throwing up and I was like I can't leave you like we're in the water like I have to be a yeah. good dive buddy and I'm towing him the other group that was diving came up with us and they were like are you okay and I was like yeah he's just <laughs> and I was like actually can you take care of him I need to go until so I get to the boat and everyone was worried that it was me that had the problem and no. I was like I'll be fine I just need some space from this oh my god that's um, so crazy so it's yeah it's not like really dive specific although like one of my friends also had this nasty habit of like gagging on her reg underwater um so she like she we made a special signal for when she was like i feel like this is about to happen so that i would just swim like away. Yeah. i would i mean i wouldn't swim away right like she's if something happened like yeah. you need to be there but i just kind of like hold her hand and turn away and then like she'd give me a little tug yeah. to be like i'm done now oh my god <laughs> um, but my underwater quirk um is i was a theater kid growing up so in my mind um i always get some sort of song stuck in my head. I do the same thing. And um, recently it's actually just been like TikTok audios, um, <laughs> which was really bad because there was one day that I had like a very long dive and all I could think of was the capybara audio. Oh I was like, capybara. Yeah, oh I was just God. like, please give me anything else, but like could not think of a single other thing. Yeah. But like monitoring, doing like three hour long dives, we'd come up for monitoring and people would be like, what's the song for this dive? And I don't know. I feel like it helps me focus. I don't know. I I do that too. Like if I'm stressed, I'll like just like sing a song in my head. Or (laughs) also if I'm having fun too. I don't realize it, but people would be like, were you trying to tell me something? And I was like, no? And they're like, oh, you're, you're singing oh underwater. I'm a big <laughs> Dominic Fike fan, and he just came out with a new song, and we went diving, I think, in St. Lucie after it came out, uh-huh. or West Palm, something like that, and for one of our work dives, and I was just like, sitting down there hammering corals, singing the song in my head. <laughs> but I'm actually very focused. Yeah. Like, it's a different part of my brain that's doing that than the part that needs to be focused on mm-hmm. doing the job. Yeah. It's not like you're distracted. You're just, like, doing two things at yeah. once. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, what's your favorite, if you had to pick one, marine organism? I feel like this changes all the time. What's your current, like, in the moment? What are you obsessed with right now? Um, I think that pillar corals are always going to be near and dear to my heart. Yeah, Those I mean, fuzzy little babies. Um, Just so good. Yeah. During my time as an intern with Coral Restoration Foundation, we all got this intern project and they had fragments of dendros mm-hmm. in the nursery. Um, and so my job is to like do all the monitoring and mm-hmm. treat them for stony coral tissue loss disease. Um, yeah. And there's this one fragment and all my friends listening to this know where this story is going because they this was like the biggest eye roll I've ever gotten from a joke um so there was this one fragment and it was a perfect pillar but it had this one little like knob in the center of it um and it kind of looked like one of those easter island heads um and so I was like oh that's my friend Vin and they were like what and I was like Vin Vin Diesel (laughs) (laughs) okay for uh, a little bit of background here for people who are not understanding this joke, there we've talked about before the agra codes that are like the four-letter codes for a coral species, and the coral species for a pillar coral, like the, the scientific name, is Dendrogyra cylindris, so you've heard us calling them dendros, and that's what we're talking about. So the four-letter agra code for that is D-C-Y-L, D-C-Y-L. So Vin Diesel, Vin is, Diesel, the pillar coral. That's a pretty good one. Yeah, it's a good one. It, it even got the pun like stacked on top of another because the project was looking at how quickly they grow so that they could end up doing like fragmentation stuff yeah. in the future. We were trying to get a baseline, mm-hmm. and so our end of semester presentation it was not so fast and furious. The growth of Vin Diesel. Oh my god! Oh my and gosh. literally everyone was like, <sighs> Krista. Oh my gosh. <laughs> You gotta have fun. You have to have fun with it. Like, you know. (laughs) The number of hours you spend doing, like, exhausting, disgusting, inconvenient work, like, you have to have some puns thrown in there. Yeah, otherwise you'll go crazy. Yeah. 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 Yep. Or maybe the the puns are the evidence of the brain. Yeah. I'm not sure. It's it's both. It's both. It goes both. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. Final question. One of my favorites. What keeps you coming back to the water? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't think it's what keeps me coming back because I feel like I've, I haven't really left. Like, 
I just the genuine curiosity. Um, I feel like I've I've dipped my toes in a bunch of different things, and and really done that drift dive of a career. Um, but I still have a lot of air in my tank. You know, I'm I'm not ready to hop out, and I'm I'm happy to just kind of keep drifting and seeing what different questions come up because there's always something, right? You're you're only scratching the surface. You can always dive deeper. Whatever analogy pun you want to use, like. <laughs> It's that genuine curiosity of, there is so much more I don't know. Like, I went through a phase where I was like, I'm brand new and I don't know anything. And then, you know, I got like senior year of undergrad and I was like, I know so much about science and now I'm back in master's and I'm like, there is so much I do not understand. And then you'll get to your PhD and you'll be like, wow, I know a lot about one very specific thing and everything else I'm finally realizing that... (laughs) is like stuff I can't, I can't even begin to ask the like I don't even know what I don't know enough yeah. to ask the question exactly yeah. yep I love that answer and all the puns thanks You're for your welcome. puns you I'm stealing some of them yeah sure thanks so much for taking time out of the Bendig Ecology meeting to come interview with us yeah thank you guys so much I'm I'm so excited to listen to all the other interviews you've done at Benthics and see where you guys both go with your futures thank you yeah thanks so much for bringing your puns we would be just bored without them we love it we love it (laughs) yeah and also let's quite seriously we're gonna plan a to die for trip yes yes it's happening you heard it here foes foes thanks so much for listening to this week's episode Don't forget to head on over to our website where you can find information on submitting your great stories for our Fishtails episodes. Those will come out about once a month, and you can find the form to submit your stories online. Our website is under titledteasapparel.com. There's a little header at the top that says to dive for a podcast. And if you hit that link, we also have merch for sale. And you can also find us on Instagram at to dive for podcast and on Facebook as well. Don't forget to like and follow and share with your friends. See you guys next week. Bye. Okay, you know, if you stick around to the end of the episode, you get a fish fact. But in this case, I'm going to give you a coral fact. So sorry, not a fish. Um, But corals use two different types of reproductive modes. So they use either broadcast spawning, which is where the corals release their gametes for external fertilization. So a coral might release just eggs, another one might release just sperm, and they'll combine in the water column to fertilize. And then the second option is brooding, and this is where eggs are fertilized um, and the embryos are maintained within the coral parent until they reach their larval stage of development, and then they're released.